All right, well, the children are preparing to leave. We are going to return to the text we started last week in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 13. We're examining and looking at verses 44 through 52, and today we return to the same text one more time to finish our message we started last week. Recall an observation you made last week. If you remember, we had said that we tend to put value on things, even things that already have a value. We still do. Remember, I tossed out a few pennies. One got close to Steve. He reached out to be able to pick it up. As just all the effort he expended, which was barely reaching out to pick it up. I remember that. And then I tossed out a few nickels and dimes and quarters. And I got a few more people excited. I think that Isaac, maybe Levi Jackson came up here and picked up a few coins. I even flew through a flat washer out there. And somebody got a chance to retrieve it. Did you keep it? You still got it? Does it have any value to it? If you go to Menards, it might have about 24 cents value to it. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, so some things have some value, but the observation from all that is that we, we tend to assign value to things. And even we get guilty of making some things like a penny almost worthless when it has some value and saying it's basically not and seeing there is value in other things that already have value. So we made that observation and we took it to a question of application which is what value do we place upon our salvation? Or what value do we place upon the kingdom? And we even further and ask the question, is it even possible to place an value on the kingdom or our salvation? And then we went to the text, the same text we go to today, in verses 44 through 52 in the 13th chapter of Matthew, and they gave us insight into how we can place value on the kingdom or if we can place value in the kingdom. Do you remember how we concluded? We concluded this way, that the value of the kingdom is immeasurable. It is inestimable. It is incalculable. You cannot put a value on the salvation or the kingdom because it is priceless, completely priceless. We use two parables to be able to make that illustration. There's three written within the text, but the first two, helped us understand you cannot put a value on the kingdom. The first one was the parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44. And the second we discussed last week, right after that, verses 45 and 46, was the parable of the costly pearl. Again, those parables, two of the three pronounced in the text we're examining, gave us the insight that it's impossible, it's incalculable, it's immeasurable of the value of our salvation and the kingdom, it is indeed priceless. So this week I thought, well, I'll put something new as a twist to help us understand how it is immeasurable, how it is priceless. So I found a quote this week from Michael Wilkins, and he says this, that salvation and the righteousness of the kingdom is a greater treasure than all the world has to offer. And it is a source of the greatest joy. So I appreciate Wilkins' comment. And as we examine that, think about that today, reflect upon it, to kind of end that segment pertaining to value. Remember, we went a little further and said it's not just that the kingdom is invaluable, that it has 
you know, it, it is priceless. There's a second aspect to the kingdom, and that is the kingdom involves a sacrifice. We duly noted that in each of those parables, there were men who made a sacrifice. They sacrificed all they had to obtain the treasure. Now, we equated that to the fact that being a follower of Christ involves a sacrifice. No, we cannot buy our salvation. However, there is a cost of salvation. It is the price of commitment which means for all of us as believers, if there is a cost of being a disciple, there is a time which we must surrender, we must submit, we must make a sacrifice to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 14, Jesus spoke to the crowd and said this very thing. He says, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So again, the kingdom involves a sacrifice. Also, we had established that you cannot put a value upon the kingdom. It is incalculable. It is immeasurable. It is priceless. So those were the things we found upon the text last week. We examined two parables, one of the hidden treasure, one of the pearl. But if you remember, there were three parables found within the text in chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. And today, we direct our attention to that third and final parable. It is called the dragnet. If we do so today, let's go back and read the text one more time and stand with me if you're able to do so as we stand to honor the reading of the word. Again, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 13, we're going to start once more in, chapter, in, in verse 44 and then read through verse 52. In verse 44 is the parable of the hidden treasure. It says, The kingdom of heaven... Is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45 and 46 is a parable of the pearl, the great value the pearl has. is Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, and sold all that he had and bought it. Those are the two parables we talked about last week. Now, Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said, have you understood all these things? Well, they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Father, Lord, we come into your presence, Lord, and are very thankful for the reading of the word and how we get a chance to freely discuss it and receive it. So, Lord, today, as we're thankful for the reading, we ask a blessing to be upon it. We also, Lord, today want to direct our attention to this third and final parable pertaining to the kingdom and begin to understand it and begin to apply it then to our lives. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit will lead and guide and direct us here this morning and let the words that are be said this morning not be my words you want us to hear, but the words that you want to be said here today so we can see how this parable applies to our lives in our day. So thank you, Lord, 
what's going to happen here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, well, the dragnet is the third parable of the three that we're finally discussing in our message pertaining to things of the kingdom. Notice, if you will, that the dragnet, the third parable, is longer than any of the previous two parables. But not only is it longer, it's given to us in verses 47 to 52. Notice how it is considerably different than the previous two parables. It is not at all like the hidden treasure or really even the costly pearl. I mean, with the dragnet, which is the word to describe this third and final parable, with the dragnet, there is no stumbling upon a hidden treasure in a field, and there is no person looking for a, a search of a fine quality pearl. I mean, those items we seen last week were of great value. They were priceless. But now we see something completely, totally different. It involves another analogy that Jesus is using to make a particular point. And now we see then that he, he changes things considerably. I mean, he uses analogy of a net, as you see in verse 47, thrown into a sea and fish gathered into the net. Now, on the surface, you may think, well, that's a radical, interesting shift of analogies. I mean, the first two had to do with the value of something. And now we find that this third parable is so much different than the other. I mean, how could it possibly relate? However, as much as we may think it's interesting that it seems to be so much different than the first two, the people that Jesus is speaking to understood how the net could be used as a parable pertaining to the kingdom. Because we must remember, fishing was an occupation that was quite common at that time. And most of the disciples are even fishermen. So the dragnet, or the usage of an illustration with the net to collect fish and the sorting that there occurs, was something they could possibly understand. Maybe not completely, but possibly relate to, because they were fishermen. However, many of us are not fishermen, or at least we may not use this big, long dragnet to collect fish. We may use a boat and a pole and some worms or whatever to fish, they probably we don't use a dragnet. So let us take a time out and quickly understand what the dragnet is that's being used here. Because research shows that a dragnet back in that day and time, and perhaps still similar to today, was one that could have been at least 700 to 750 feet in length, which seems to me a bit extreme. I mean, look at the width of the church. It's much wider than we're talking about here with the width of the church. And to think that they had a dragnet that large back in that day, to me, is pretty astounding. But not only was it wide, exceptionally wide, it stood about 25 feet tall in the center. And then it went and tapered down to about five feet at each end. Now, with that dragnet, then, it was built to the point where it could collect fish, which means that the bottom of the dragnet, the rope at the bottom, would have been having sinkers on it so it could float down to the bottom. But the top of the dragnet would have been made with corks so it could float upon the top of the sea. So what they would do basically then is they would take this big, long dragnet, however way they did it, put it into the sea. The corks would allow it to float on top. The dragnet would be going to the bottom based upon the sinkers. And they would pull it to shore and have a great collection of fish that they were able to receive from the dragnet. So with a large wide dragnet 
25 feet in the center, five on the side, get a huge amount of fish. Both good and bad will be collected. And so the process begins, which is very common, of the sorting. Now, in case you're wondering what would be described as a bad fish, there's good fish, there's bad fish. What would be described as a bad fish? Well, a bad fish for those without fins and scales, which were deemed as unclean for the Israelite people. According to law written in Leviticus chapter 11, it describes the bad fish for us in verses 9 through 12. Verse 9 is that everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But verse 10 says anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales. Other swarming creatures in the waters and the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. Or maybe verse 12 just sums it all up. Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. Well, that would be described as the bad fish. So then Jesus uses then a third illustration. Third of the three we're looking at in this particular set of parables. One that was picked but very common to the people that day who understood what it meant to fish with a dragnet. He's taking the chance to have this third and final parable to make a one more aspect of the kingdom for them to understand. So what is the third aspect of the kingdom that he was teaching the people at this moment? We're going to answer in just a moment. But before we do, let's go back to the text once more, particularly verses 48 through 50, because I want you to see, before we unveil the meaning, how the emphasis is placed upon the sorting that must occur. Verse 48. When it was full, that's the dragnet, which we understand now how it's collecting fish. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. The sorting has started. Verse 49. So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so here we have then with the parable, the dragnet, some very strong words that Jesus is using a pictorial, if you will, of something that will occur at the end of the age. The close of the age, some sorting will obviously evidently occur. Jesus is making it completely obvious to the people who are watching and hearing his words. What's going to occur? Well, again, the verses tell us the sorting of the good and the bad, the evil from the righteous, the evil being thrown into the fiery furnace. Verse 50 mentions again the gnashing and weeping of teeth. All that is going to occur. He uses the parable to make them understand so something will occur, some sorting. So notice again how this parable is so radically different than the first two. The first two is talking about the value, which is priceless. Now he's having another completely another aspect of something to the kingdom, and we must understand how it relates to the kingdom. So our intent now is to discover how this then relates to the kingdom. So allow me to unveil the meaning of the third parable of the dragnet, which is this. The third parable reveals the looming judgment 
of the kingdom of heaven. As we reveal the meaning of the third parable, it should be noted then, as the meaning is the looming forthcoming judgment of the kingdom of heaven, as we see that with the dragnet, now we must understand this is not the first time that Jesus has told his disciples and the peoples about the forthcoming judgment, the looming judgment pertaining to the kingdom. This is not the first time he's explained that to them. In this chapter, in chapter 13 of the Gospel of Matthew, he's already made one reference to this. In this chapter, previously to the reading, is a parable called the weeds among the wheat. Verse 24, chapter 13. Jesus put another parable for them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Well, he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. So there's the first reference really to what is known as the dragnet, and also the judging and the sorting that will occur at the close of the age. Now, the disciples don't seem to understand that. It's not actually fully understandable if they get always talking about the dragnet. But he, the disciples a bit later want to know and directly go to Jesus and say, can you explain what you just told us about these weeds and about that wheat? Can you explain that to us? So in this chapter, immediately before the verses we read today, is the explanation of the parable of the weeds and of the wheat, which is this. Verse 36. Well, then he, Jesus, left the crowds, went into the house. His disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Well, he answered, he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sold them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and he will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Note, if you will, the similarities of the parable of the weeds and the wheat, which we had just read together, and to that which you read previously of the dragnet. Note the similarities. Allow me to point them out to you, that there is the angels coming to separate the good and the bad. There is the bad, the evil, being thrown into the fiery furnace. 
There is the weeping, the gnashing of teeth. And of course, the reference to so it will be at the close of the age. So it's not coincidental. Make sure you see it's not coincidental. Within the same chapter, shortly placed together in the Gospel of Matthew, it's not coincidental to find such similarities that exist between the two texts. And Jesus often echoes a particular point he was trying to make. So here he utilizes two different illustrations, one involving wheat and weeds, one involving good fish and bad fish with a dragnet to make a particular point. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make with the disciples and the people? What is the point here? It is this. At the appropriate time, which he has stated is the close of the age, judgment will occur for everyone. Let's say it again. The point he's trying to make with the parables is this. At the appropriate time, at the end of the age, judgment will occur for not just a few, but for everyone. Now, as we see, that's what the meaning is, and now that's what he's trying to reveal to the people. The question really becomes, does that scare you? Does it scare you to know that there's a looming forthcoming judgment upon all of mankind? Is there a judgment at the close of the age? Does that scare you? And we may be processing that in our mind. I'm seeing some people already give me some sort of answer. And for some people, I'm recognizing how that is not scary at all. I mean, some people find no, nothing scary about the forthcoming looming judgment. And they're not scared because they know they are of the good fish. They are of the wheat. They're not the weed. They're not the bad fish. They know where they stand in relation to Jesus. They fully, completely accepted him as being Lord of their life. They've made that change. They've made that sacrifice. And because they know this, they know the judgment is coming, and they're not scared about it. They're not worried. But there are other people, people actually who should be scared, people who should be worried, who are not scared either. And that's a bit perplexing. So as we think about, we, there's, there's people who are not concerned and not worried because they know. They know. They know where they stand with Jesus and they're right. They're ready at this moment. But there are other people who are not scared. Now, I think about that and I recognize those people who should be scared, who are not scared, either do not believe the judgment is coming or they think they have plenty of time before the judgment would come, which is pronounced as the close of the age. So let us take another time out and, and talk then about what and when is this close of the age. I mean, if that's what he's talking about, that judgment is coming, okay, it's coming at the end of the age, what, when is that? Let's take a time out and discuss it. Because the answer to when is the close or end of the age is unknown. Nobody knows. Then the question pertaining to what is the end of the age is actually could be described as this. That would be the end of the period in which we're living now. Maybe the period could be described right now as the age of grace or the church age. And the end of that particular time would be the ushering in of the next period. 
which would then involve and include the rapture. The moment that all the Christians are removed from the face of the earth. It also would involve the time of the tribulation, which is seven years of wrath being poured out on those who remain and are left behind. And of course, it also includes the literal second coming, which would then be followed by the judgment of all. Now, we must understand that as we talk about the close of the age or the end of the age, whatever word you want to use to describe it, end of the age or close of the age. Bible translations sometimes put different words in there. They all mean really the same. But recognize how even disciples were curious about this time. In Matthew 24, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, they captured Jesus for a moment, captured they were with him, and spoke to him and said, Lord, in verse 3, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. When that verse is to follow in Matthew 24, you can read it later, you're going to see all kinds of things described. It's almost like Jesus doesn't really tell them the answer to when it will be. Because they're curious. They want to know. I mean, everybody always wants to know when this is going to happen. Let me get ready. You should be ready now. But when's it going to happen? When the verses to follow, he tells them what to look for. He tells them to look for wars and rumors of wars and false Christ and false prophets. There'll be nation to rise against nation. There'll be famines and earthquakes and increase of lawlessness. And he tells them so much more in all the verses that follow when they ask the question to win. But then he changes it a little bit to give them a little hint. Concerning the date, he says this. Concerning the day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. The judgment is forthcoming when we do not know but it is certain. So maybe we could answer the what, when, with the close of the age this way, to say it is a future time to come. It is certain that it will come, but it's unknown to when. But will be the current age of grace, the present church age in which we're living, that comes to an end. The kingdom is established, true justice will reign, and then the wicked are judged. The question really should be, are you ready for such a time as this? Are you ready for the judgment? Because the judgment is coming. And recognize then how when the judgment comes, you cannot change your answer. It is final. There is no reversal. There is no trying out to see if you can make it or like it or whatever. It is the final judgment. It's like the game show they had so many years ago. Is that your final answer? Well, you better get your answer ready right now because you cannot change your answer. It is final at the judgment. It is a looming forthcoming judgment of all mankind. Now, in case there's still some confusion associated with all this talk about the close of the age and the judgment forthcoming, I borrow the words of Michael Wilkins one more time because he sheds a little light on the end of age judgment. He says this, When Jesus comes in power, he will consummate the establishment of his kingdom on earth. He will send his angels 
to initiate judgment by separating the wicked, defined as those that deny the message of the gospel, the truth of Christ, from the righteous, those who have responded positively to the gospel. He says, further, the final arrival of the kingdom of heaven will extend its net. There's the dragnet analogy. It will extend its net throughout the entire world. And no race, no category of person will escape the final judgment. All will be sorted into one of two groups. Those God accepts and those he rejects. Wilkins is spot on. It's completely the right description of what shall and will occur. And upon hearing then Wilkins' elaboration and explanation from his commentary, it goes to the next logical question being this. Which of the two groups do you right now belong? Is it the one of the weeds? Is it the category of the bad fish, the wicked? who continually just reject Christ and his goodness, the Son of God? Or are we right now among the wheat? I pray we're all among the wheat, the good fish, the righteous that God accepts. As you contemplate the question of which of the two groups that you may belong to, recognize also this. No one but you can answer that question. As much as you may know your spouse or children, only you can honestly answer the question. Only you and God really know which group you belong to. And here's further, no one can decide which group for you to belong. You got to make your own choice, own decision of which group you will belong to. I mean, ultimately, if we try to put a summation upon the things happening in this third and final parable, or the wheat and of the weeds parable, as they seem to be connected together, we can say it this way, that the kingdom is not an automatic qualifier. There's no automatic qualifying for the kingdom. Sorting will occur between the two groups that exist, between the good fish and the bad fish, or those among the wheat and the weeds. Sorting will occur. No matter which parable you may prefer, it tells us it shall happen. It will happen. Judgment is forthcoming and shall happen with the sorting of the good and the bad. There's no automatic qualifying for the kingdom. And to help with that, I thought of a final analogy. It will work for some, but maybe not work for all. Because if you happen to love basketball, you know that every March, every year in March, with the exception of a COVID year, right? But every year in March, there is an NCAA basketball tournament, all right? The NCAA basketball tournament has 64 teams that make it to what is known as the Big Dance. Now, There are a few teams like number 65 and 66 that play a little bit before you get in there. That's meaningless. All right. There's 64 teams that really make it to the big dance of the NCAA tournament. All right. Now, here's the thing also. You got to know this. Before the big dance occurs, there are teams, there are conferences who are having their own conference tournament. 
And the winner of the conference tournament gets an automatic invite, an automatic qualifying for the big dance tournament that happens in March, which now we have the SEC, okay? We have the Big Ten, the Big 12, the ACC, and many more conferences like that will have their own basketball conference tournament. The winner of the tournament gets the automatic qualifying into this field of 64. So the teams that do not win the tournament, they got to do it based upon their works or the wins and losses to see if they get an invitation to the tournament. All right? So that is the field of 64. There is some debate about how well it works, but pretty much for the NCAA tournament that occurs in March for the men's basketball, it pretty much is okay. But here's the analogy as we now point it back to our lives. There is truly a big dance coming. The big dance is the kingdom of heaven. It's not the NCAA tournament. The big dance in our lives, if you're a believer, is the kingdom of heaven. And recognize in our big dance, there is no automatic qualifiers. And there is no one who can base it upon their works, their wins and losses to get invited to the kingdom. There's only one way to become part of the kingdom. And that is only through Jesus and Jesus alone. John had it right in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said clearly, I am, I am the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the kingdom except through me. That is the only way. No automatic qualifiers for the kingdom. No one based upon their works of good and deeds. Only through Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel of John, you may recognize the name Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees who had some interest in our Lord and didn't go about the day, but he went about the night, you know, trying to discover things about Jesus and asking perhaps about the kingdom. And Jesus explained to him, look, you've got to be born again. In John chapter 3, in the beginning when Nicodemus is talking to Jesus in dark and secret and how Jesus explains to him to be born again, at the tail end of that section, you find the most infamous verse at John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. Maybe one of the verses that we memorized First in our lives as believers. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now, whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But just as John 3.16 is important to Nicodemus and to all people, so are all the verses that follow. So look at it with me, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes, here it comes, listen, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. All that because I wanted to say this. Don't live in the darkness. People love to live in the darkness and the evil and the things caught up into the world. Don't live in the dark. 
Find the light. The light is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the light of the world. Come to know Jesus. There's only one way to make it to the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way. And the only possible way is to come to know Jesus as Lord. That is the only possible way. Accept the light. Accept the light given to the world. His name is Jesus. That is the way they become eligible for the kingdom of heaven. Father, Lord, we're appreciative and thankful for this message, Lord. We know this day shall occur one day in the future. And we want to take an opportunity right now, Lord, to reflect upon this message, perhaps all the parables in general that we discussed this week or in last week. And as we reflect upon them, Lord, be praying for maybe not only ourselves, but for our people he loved. Records, Lord, we want all the people to come to be part of the kingdom. So, Lord, right now we pray for one another. For maybe those we love. Maybe here, maybe not here today, maybe not present. But we want to pray for them, Lord, so they can be part of the kingdom, not be left behind to endure all the wrath. Lord, let us be thankful that we can be part of the kingdom. And that your son Jesus took that sacrifice for our sins so that we could be eligible. The Lord, we're thankful, but yet we're burdened, perhaps by those who are not ready for the judgment that is coming. So in the time that shall come, Lord, of reflection, we want to take an opportunity now to begin to process that. People in our heart, Lord, people in our mind, let it come to us now. Lord, flood us with those names. The people, Lord, that we want to be able to pray for. I pray, Lord, you'll stir in these hearts of the people that's coming to our mind and heart. I pray, Lord, you'll stir greatly. Agitate them this week, Lord, to the point where they find that something must change, something must be different. They're empty, Lord, inside because they've not yet received you in their life. So I pray, Lord, today that you'll hear our prayer for those people in our hearts now. Convict them of their sin. And point them toward the truth of your son. Lord, I'm thankful for all those who have received this truth in your son. We're thankful, Lord, for the sacrifice your son made for all of us. We're thankful for the message, all the blessings you give to us. The best blessing, of course, we always say is your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.